If you open up to the book of Exodus chapter 18, we'll take a look at what the Lord has for us tonight. As we consider what's going on, remember, the Lord took roughly, the Lord took three months to get the children of Israel to to where they are in, in chapter 18. About three months of journey, you remember all the places that we went through, each stop along the way, God taught the children of Israel something to equip them to be ready to enter into the promised land. Each one of the stops laid out for them a lesson. Remember, as we went through them last time, Sukkoth is where they went first. They stop at Sukkoth, tent town, in tent town they learn that this world is not my home and nothing here is ever going to satisfy. Everything here starts rotten the day after you get it. And it continues to rot until it's rotten. So we don't want to put our hope and faith in those things. Rather, we want to look for a city whose builder and maker is the Lord. And so the Lord first taught them that lesson. Hey, we want to look to the eternal, not to the temporal. And then he stopped off at Etham. Etham was at the edge, the corner, the beginning of going in to the wilderness. And Etham means with them. It was in Etham that God appeared to them in the cloud and in the pillar of fire. He showed them, wherever you are, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. Now listen, folks, as we go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we go through all the journeys of the children of Israel during the 40 years that they're going to wander in the wilderness, I want you to recognize that God never left. Just like he promised them in Etham, he was with them every step of the way. Every morning they woke up, he was there. Every night when they went to bed, he was there. And that's the lesson he gave them at their second stop. Hey, I'm always going to be with you. Thick and thin, failure, victory, defeat. God stayed with his people. And that was the lesson he gave them when they stopped at Etham. Then they came to Pihahiroth and Migdol. Pihahiroth and Migdol were two mountains. Remember, that's a place where the Lord led the children of Israel into a dead end. Red Sea at their back, two mountains on each side, nowhere to go. Sometimes the Lord takes us into difficult times. Sometimes the Lord takes us into an area between a rock and a hard place. And he puts us right in the middle. And a lot of folks, when they get in that place, they start thinking, what have I done wrong? What did I do, Lord, to make you mad? Well, the Lord brought the children of Israel to to that place between a rock and a hard place so that he could show the Egyptians who he was. And sometimes when we're in a rock and a hard place, God's showing our neighbors, our friends, our family, what true faith is all about. What true faith is is going on. And so he taught the children of Israel. He was there with them. He guided them to that place. And he ultimately was their deliverance, right? The Red Sea parts and they walk across as though on dry ground. Then they went to a place called Mara. Remember, Mara means bitterness they had to deal with bitterness they came to a place had hadn't had any water they come to a place there's water they rush down to the water and it's bad it's not any good it's not any good it's bitter and so the lord brought them to mara a place of bitterness to learn how to deal with bitterness what did he tell them to do go find the tree and throw that tree into that pool of water and the bitter water will be made sweet The tree all throughout the scripture, folks, is going to be a symbol of the cross, a cross of Jesus Christ 
for you and I, for them, for all of us, if we want to overcome bitterness, we overcome it in light of the cross. Consider Jesus. When we look at ourselves and we think that we're really going through it, having a horrible time, consider what Jesus did for us and allow that to lift us out of our bitterness. That God loved me so much that he left the, the, the beauty of heaven. He set aside all his rights as almighty God and came in the form of man for me. That he was beaten and crucified for me. The, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy set before him is you and I. All those who would come to faith in Christ Jesus as a result of what he did. We can overcome bitterness in our life if we'll look at the things that are going on in our life in light of the cross. If we'll put the tree in the water, it'll turn to bitter to sweet. Well, after they left Mara, then they came to Elam, the mighty ones. You had the mighty palm trees and the 12 wells of water. And we see the palm trees and the wells of water serving the people. They come, they drank, they found rest and all that they needed. And the scripture lays out for us in that, that we'll find rest and peace in service, in being what we're called to be. If I'm a palm tree, I'll be a palm tree. If I'm a well, I'll be a well. And there's going to be people that receive rest as a result of what I am. What I am in Christ. Not to be afraid to be what God has called us to be. We'll find refreshment as we fulfill our purpose in that. Then they took them to the wilderness of sin. Remember we talked about that. We're all going to spend some time in the wilderness of sin. In the wilderness of sin, you remember they got hungry? And God proved to them that he will always be everything they need. When they needed bread, what did he do? He sent them bread from heaven. Manna, they called it. What's it? But the Lord provided them bread from heaven. And Jesus in John chapter 6 told us that in the, in the Old Testament, their forefathers ate the manna and died. But he said, I am the bread of life. The real bread from heaven. Manna, therefore, is a picture of Jesus Christ. Bread from heaven. That which sustains us. That which carries us through. That is laid out for us there in the wilderness of sin. As God becoming everything that they need became that which would sustain. That which would carry them through. And then we saw them last time at Rephidim. Rephidim, remember Rephidim means the rest stop, the rest area. It was an oasis. But when they got to Rephidim, what didn't they find? No water. No water. So what was it that took place? Well, Moses was told by God to take that rod. Remember we talked about it. Take that rod. What's the first miracle he had done with that rod? He threw it down on the ground and what? It became a snake. In the Proto-Evangelicum, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first prophecy in the Bible, the, the Lord said that the Messiah would bruise his heel while crushing the head of what? The serpent. So Moses takes his staff and he goes to the rock and, and he smites the rock, right? He smites the rock and out of the rock pours living water. In John chapter 7, what did Jesus tell the, the children of Israel there on the great day of the feast? If any of you thirst, come where? To me, and I will give you drink. The, the scripture declared to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock in the wilderness 
that followed the children of Israel, that provided their water the 40 years that they were in the wilderness, that that rock is Christ. And remember we talked about that great old hymn, Rock of Ages? You remember how we talked about it when that rock was struck? What did it do? It created a cleft. That cleft for you and I, that's where we go. That's where we hide. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me Hide myself in thee. Just like Moses wanting to see the glory of God. Where did God put him? In the cleft of the rock. And he held his hand over him. And he allowed his afterglow to pass by. And the face of Moses shines for 40 days on the afterglow of God. As God held his hand over him in the rock. It's a picture of John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I'm holding you in my hands and no one can snatch you out. And the Father holds you in his hands. That hand coming over the top. Over the top of the cleft of the rock. As Moses finds that place in him. And that takes place in Rephidim. Again, God is showing us he's everything we need, isn't he? He's everything that we When we're thirsty, he's living water. If we're hungry, he's the bread from heaven. We find out if we're lonely, he's always with us. He'll never leave us. If we're despairing of our stuff in this world, the Lord would say, I never told you to put your trust in that. Look to me. All of these things were lessons. Now, as soon as they finished that last lesson, what happened? They went to battle. They went to battle with the Amalekites, remember? They had to fight Amalek. Amalek attacked them from behind. Remember their rear ranks? The weak, the sickly, Amalek came behind and attacked them. Folks, Amalek throughout the scriptures is a picture, a pattern of the flesh. What happens as soon as we find victory, as soon as we grow to a point, as soon as the Lord provides us with that bread of life and that sustaining living water in our life, what should we expect? Battle. Battle. A battle with our flesh. Paul would say the, the flesh and the spirit are, the flesh is always at enmity with God. Always doing battle against what the spirit wants to do in our life. And what did we discover about that battle? We discovered what? That that battle was won in prayer. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So what happened? Moses prayed over the army. And as long as he prayed, his arms outstretched, the army was winning. But when his arms got tired and they dropped, then the enemy, the Amalekites, began to win. And so what happened? Folks came alongside Moses and held up his arms. Right? Aaron and Hur held up his arms And so the children of Israel won the victory. What's the symbolism that we see there? Remember, we've talked about it. Whenever we look in the Hebrew Scriptures, we need to understand that the concept behind the Hebrew in the Scripture is to look for patterns. What's the patterns? Well, what do we see? Moses praying, and as long as he was praying in intercessory prayer, the battle was won. We see the battle is, is fought in the Lord and not in the flesh. It was God that gave the battle. And when one brother is weary, what happened? Two came alongside. What does that tell us as a, as a body, as a body of Christ, as a body in the church? That the church moves forward on its knees. The church moves forward in prayer. And when one brother's weak, two brothers come alongside. When a sister's down, they come alongside. We stand together and we have the victory. As long as we realize that victory is not won by might of arm, 
but by our willingness to seek the Lord in prayer. And God will give the victory. And so, their journey, the seven stops that they're going to take, is over. Now, we're going to have a little period here as we look at chapter 18, chapter 19. We're going to find them at Sinai where they receive the law. They're going to spend nearly a year at Mount Sinai as the Lord gives the children of Israel the law. But prior to that, we're going to take a look at a family reunion. A family reunion for Moses. Let's take a look. 18 verse 1. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that Israel had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. I love the fact that we see Jethro, a high priest, or a priest of the Most High God in Midian. He's a Gentile who worship, who worships Yahweh. In fact, he uses the covenantial name of God. Remember, every time you read the Scriptures, you see the capital L-O-R-D. It is the exact Four letters of God's name, Y-H-V-H, Y-H-W. W and B are the same letter in Hebrew. So it's Yahweh. It's that name. And Jethro knows God. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't from the nation of Israel. He was a Midianite. Yet he knew the Lord. He knew God. And so Jethro, remember Jethro's where Moses went, where he found his wife in the first place, when, when he was on the backside of the desert and he saw the burning bush. Everybody remember when all that took place? Well, that same Jethro now has heard about all that God has done in Midian. How did he do that? He didn't turn on CNN. I tr- trust me, if CNN existed, they wouldn't have carried that story. You'd have had to go to Fox News to hear anything, (laughs) anything about what was going on in reality. So here, they didn't have the news. They didn't have the ability to tune in. What was going on, folks? This thing wasn't done in a corner. People knew about it. In fact, 40 years later, when the children of Israel enter into the promised land, when they come to Jericho and they send the spies in, do you know what the spies are going to hear? We've been afraid of you ever since the Lord delivered you out of Egypt. Forty years later, they're still talking about it. They were still talking about it in Jericho. So Jethro's heard about it. And Jethro's excited about what God had done in in his son-in-law's life. So look what it says. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. Whoa, 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 when did that happen? Somewhere during the Exodus, after Exodus chapter 4, and sometime prior to or during the plagues, Moses sent Zipporah and his two children back to Jethro. Why? I don't hardly blame them. Would you? It was kind of crazy during that time. And he, maybe he thought she was going to be safer. Maybe she was frustrated. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we're not going to spend a lot of time speculating. But what we're going to see is right now there's a family reunion. However long his wife's been gone and he hasn't seen his two kids, now Jethro is bringing them to him. Jethro is coming with them. Now Zipporah, just for your Bible trivia needs, means sparrow. 
And she came in verse 3 with her two sons. The name of the first one was Gershom. Remember, Gershom is a stranger in a strange land. He had Gershom while he was on the backside of the desert, remember? And this place isn't my home, and he's a little bit lost. He names his son a stranger. And then his second son, the name of the other son, was Eleazar. Eleazar means God is my help. So in the name of his children, you can see Moses' journey, right? As Moses finds himself first on the backside of the desert, you know, whatever, feeling like, hey, I messed up and God can't use me anymore. And if we're honest, probably some of us have been there. He names his first son Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a reality. He's beginning to grasp that this place is not my home. And then what? God is my help, his second born. God is my help. That God is going to be there and be whatever he needs God to be. But it's interesting. Remember, we've talked about it a few times. Whenever we look at the scriptures, if we want to put on a Hebrew mindset, we want to look for pattern. What kind of patterns do we see here? Well, let's talk about it for just a moment. If we look at Exodus chapter 4, the last time we saw Zipporah and her children was when God said he was going to kill Moses. You remember that, that weird section of Scripture, and Moses is headed back to the promised land, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it says, and God sought to kill Moses. Because Moses hadn't done what he was required to do, and his child had not been circumcised. And if you remember, because Moses hadn't done it, Zipporah did it. And after Zipporah circumcised her son, she threw the foreskin down at, at Moses' feet and said, you are a husband of blood to me. You are a husband of blood. She was offended by the blood. Now, that's the last time we see her. I'm not saying she left then. But in Scripture, that's the last time we see her until now. Zipporah is gone. The children are gone. And if we look at Moses, we see Moses as that picture of the prophet that would come. Moses, the Scripture tells us, a picture of the prophet that would come, the Messiah. Moses becomes a picture of Christ for us, a pattern. And we see Zipporah, if we look at Zipporah as the wife. Now, who's the wife of God? What does Scripture say? Who's the wife of God? Israel is the wife of God. The church is the bride of Christ. Israel is the wife of God. So if we look at Zipporah as a nation of Israel, look at the pattern. Just back up and take a look. What's happening? Zipporah is brought back to a relationship with her husband through a Gentile priest. A Gentile priest. What does that mean, folks? The Scripture tells us that the nation of Israel will come back to a relationship with God through jealousy at the church. A Gentile priest. Bringing the wife of God back. Bringing her back to a right relationship. So we see this pattern in the Scriptures. Remember, this is the Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew mindset of Scripture is that Scripture is pattern. And that's what we see in this pattern. But even more than that, take a look. Here they come. They brought their children. Uh, in verse 4 it says, uh, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh, speaking of his son Eleazar. And then in verse 5, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Where have they stopped now? 
Sinai. They're going to be at this stop for at least 11 months. They're going to be at this stop, the longest of all stops. This is where God is really going to reveal his law to the children of Israel. He's going to reveal it here at Mount Sinai. Now, as they come, Mount Sinai, remember that mountain? Remember what the Lord said to Moses? Way back at the burning bush. Well, you're going to go and deliver your people, and then you will worship me where? On my holy mountain, right here, where the burning bush was. Right there again at Mount Sinai. Right there again near his father-in-law where he could bring his family to him. So Moses is, is, is in this place right where God told him to come. Right where he was coming to worship and to learn about all that God had for him. But look, when he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your <coughs> wife and your two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet, what does it say? His father-in-law? Huh. Moses went out and met his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent. We're going to see something that takes place fairly often as we study the scriptures. And that is this. We're going to see that man of God, that minister called of God, in one way or another, Letting his family feel like they're the last part. And that was not ever part of God's plan. But so often that man of God, even as Moses here, is so focused on doing the work that God's called him to do that he lets his family take second part, right? When Zipporah came back with his two sons, who knows how long they've been gone, months. At least three months they've been traveling. So at least three months, probably more, and as they come to that place, he wants to sit down and talk with his father-in-law about all the Lord has been doing in his ministry. He's gotten so focused on the work, and it's so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, we can all come to that place. We get so focused on work. We get so focused on the ministry, and we lose the focus of the part that God gave us first. As that first part, what did he tell us in Deuteronomy? He told us to teach our children. Teach our children these truths. Moses is teaching two million people. But he's leaving his wife and kids in the other tent. I think Jethro is going to give him some good advice in this chapter to help him get on track. And remember where his primary ministry is too. But don't forget the great Shema, the the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he commands us in that commandment to train up our children, to teach them the things that God has shown us. That's the first call. Then after that, we, we can start looking around. Where is it that God's calling us? How is the Lord directing us in ministry? But we want to fulfill that primary call. That God's given us. And Moses here is a little bit focused, a little bit too much maybe, focused on all that God has been doing to him and not on his family. And so, verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Now I'm reminded as we look at this story, as Moses is sharing, What is it that the Lord said to us? How was it that we were going to overcome 
the, the power of the enemy. He said that they would overcome him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives to the death. And here we see the word of the testimony. Moses is laying this out to Jethro. And folks, while Moses is laying this out to Jethro, don't let us miss the point that we're supposed to be laying this out for our kids or for our grandkids or for those whom the Lord has placed in our charge. We have experiences, a word of testimony in our life. And our children should be well-versed in that. They should know our stories, frontwards, backwards, sideways, that they would have an understanding of all that God has done in and through our lives. Well, so he goes on. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for in this very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. So again, Moses laid out for them the battle. The Lord said that his judgment, the ten plagues, came against the gods of Egypt. And as we looked at it, as we went through the plagues, we see each one attacking the deities of Egypt, showing that they weren't real, that God was true. And remember, when the children of Israel left, they didn't leave just by themselves. There were Egyptians that went with them. There were Egyptians who turned and would, would live their lives out as good, devoted Jews. There were Egyptians that went with them that only went half-hearted, a mixed multitude. There were Jews who went only half-hearted. And the Lord's going to deal with those during the 40 years in the wilderness. But in the meantime, don't they all experience the same thing? Didn't Paul write in 1 Corinthians 10? They were all baptized through the Red Sea. They all passed through. They all experienced manna from heaven. They all experienced the living water flowing out of the rock. Yet, they all didn't enter into the rest. Because they all didn't believe. They saw the miracles. But it didn't affect a change in their heart. And so... Jethro laying these things out for them that he had been above them. Verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, they've, they've had their reunion. He's laid it all out. They offered a sacrifice in thanks of all the good things that God had done, now we come to day two. Now day two, Moses is back to work. He's right back going into, into what he did in ministry. And so we see it in verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw that all, saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and the other. And I make known the statutes of God and His law. Literally, His Torot, the Torah. 
the law which is going to be expounded on in the next chapter as the Lord gives the law to the nation of Israel. But here, already we see Moses standing in judgment. Folks, how long would it take you to judge trouble between two and a half million people? One guy, how many cases you think they had? How many issues? How many, this guy did that, or that guy did this, or he put his tent too close to my tent. Could tell him to move his tent over there. You know how people are when they all get together. Two and a half million people, every day, Moses goes out all day long from morning to evening and hears all their complaints and all their problems and tries to help them out. You think he's getting anywhere? No, he's just spinning his wheels. And pretty soon he's going to get burnt out and cynical and then everybody's just a big whiner, right? Isn't that what we see later on as he goes through the 40 years? He's so frustrated with the nation of Israel when he's told to speak to the rock to bring forth water. What does he do? He hits it. He strikes the rock. The rock was only smitten once, wasn't it? Remember, 1 Corinthians 10 says the rock was who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ only died on the cross one time. After that, we would only have to ask to receive. No longer would the rock be smitten. But Moses is frustrated and irritated with the people. And so he goes and smites that rock. Well, here he is out there judging all these people on the onset. He's trying to move forward in ministry. And he's taken the entire ministry upon his shoulder. Two and a half million. There he is. No way. It's not going to work. But that's what Moses does. Nonetheless, that's Moses' plan. That's where Moses is in regard to this. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, This thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you, for you are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice, and I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people. Moses is going to get focused in one area. And Moses actually becomes, in Scripture, a picture for us, or an example of the first pastor. And Moses' job, his role, is to stand before God for the people, to be seeking that vision from the Lord for the people, that direction from God, the, the going before the Lord in teaching. I remember one of the, one of the teachers that I had, there's always the same questions come up, folks ask, well, in order to be, you know, really doing the right thing, doing the right thing in study, preparing for a lesson, how much time should we be spending on, on a message? How much time should be spent in preparation? And everybody had different answers. But I heard from one uh, person actually recently who said that he puts in 20 hours of preparation for a Sunday morning. 20 hours because he remembers one of his professors telling him, hey, if you're not prepared for Sunday morning and you have a hundred people who come to your service and they come to listen and you weren't ready, you just wasted an hour for a hundred people. That's a hundred hours you wasted for the Lord. So he was, he, he has ever since that time has felt devoted, desiring to spend time at the Lord's feet. 
You remember the story of Mary and Martha, right? The first time Mary and Martha are going to spend time with the Lord. We find it in Luke chapter 10. Why don't you turn with me? We'll go take a look at it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Luke 10, 38 says this. Now it happened as they went that they entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was what? Distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. When we look at this example in the New Testament, in the scriptures, this is what we see. We see that Martha was distracted by serving. There's lots of ways that we can serve the Lord, right? We can serve the Lord. We have How many needs do we have just in our fellowship? Folks, we have a ton of needs. We're always needing people's help with the kids. We're always needing help on Wednesday night in the different classes with the kids, uh, teaching the kids. We need help in children's uh, worship. We need help in in just about every aspect of ministry, there's never a shortage of needs in terms of help. But along with that, there's always that charge in the scripture that we not be distracted by service. That means we're so focused on the service that we forget what it's all about. Right? Martha was focused on service and she was distracted. She's mad at Mary for worshiping Jesus and not serving with her. And Jesus said, whoa, you lost track of the main thing. And the main thing is and will always be Jesus. Folks, if we're serving, if you're involved in in teaching the kids, but you're not spending any time at Jesus' feet, you're just going to run yourself out. You can't do that. In order for you to give away, you must be receiving You must be spending time at his feet. And the next time we see Martha, you know she's doing the same thing, right? In the Gospel of John, she's serving only what's different. She's not distracted by service anymore. The main thing is the main thing. The service is for who? For Jesus. And she's not upset and she's not frustrated and the Lord is not rebuking her. Because she's serving with a good heart, for she is a servant and fulfilling her purpose. Being that, serving the Lord, but it's her attitude. Her attitude is what it's all about. Moses, we see, busy doing all this stuff and getting all this stuff done. But you could say the same thing for him, couldn't you? Distracted by service, how do you serve two and a half million? I mean, really, wouldn't you be depressed? At the end of your day, what did you see? Let's say you saw a thousand people. Wow, you just took a big bite out of two and a half million, right? And you look at that line and you see it just wrapping around the camp. And you know 
you're feeling like for the rest of my life, is this all I'm ever going to do? But what was Moses called to do? He was called to lead the people. And Jethro, in recognizing what's going on in Moses, he's going to instruct Moses in a way to get on track. Hey, Mo, this is what you need to be doing. This is where you need to be focused. What's he say? Go before the Lord. Stand before God. What's he saying? Don't be like Martha, distracted in service, but be like who? Mary, at the foot of Jesus. Anytime we are going to give out in ministry, guys, if we're not at the feet of Jesus, what do you have to give? It's no good just going through the motions. We must be receiving from the Lord. And so... He says, stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to who? To the Lord. Bring the difficulties to God. In our church government here, we have a board of elders. What's the role of the board of elders? To come together, consider the difficulties, the issues, the challenges of the body, and commit them to prayer. And seek God's direction on what to do about it. They're not elected, they're appointed. And we're going to see how they're appointed as we look in this scripture because it lays it all out for us. But as they're appointed, there are men who are willing to seek the Lord for His guidance and direction so that they might be able, so that we might be able to come to the proper conclusions. What's some of the things that are going on here? Well, we, winter's coming, huh? Well, we just got a, our roof partially done prepared for winter so all the leaks are taken care of it's got to be done we knew we had leaks we knew we had issues seek the lord pray what direction what do are we should we just go up and, and smear tar god what should we do and as the lord directs what we do we step forward we meet that need and each one of the needs that we have within the body we're supposed to do the same way, but how do we do it? Do we, should we just sit down and think about how smart we are and come up with our own plan? No, we'll mess it all up. Who knows the right way to get things done? The Lord knows. The Lord, he's the only one. I don't care what it looks like or what makes sense. Folks, if you and I got together and we said, oh, I know, we're going to form a committee about how we're going to take the city of Jericho. None of us would have come up with a plan God had. Right? We'd all said, okay, here's what we're going to do, and this is how we'll do it, and blah, you know? But what did God want him to do? He just wanted him to walk around it. Just march around it. Seven days. By the way, if you count seven days on a calendar, you'll discover that one of those days was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, they marched around it seven times. They did seven times the amount of work. Hmm. We'll save that for when we get to it. We'll just scratch your ears a little bit with that one. However, when we take a look at it, God had a plan, didn't he? He had a way. Does God have a particular way for you and I? Does God have a, a certain plan for you and I, something that he wants us to do in a certain way, something that he wants us to accomplish? I had a, a guy I met several years ago when I was a youth pastor who started a ministry called Friendships. This is an incredible ministry to me. What friendships did was they took all the food that we were throwing away. They'd take all the junk that the, that the 
supermarkets were getting rid of. Anything that was being thrown away. And they would sort it. They would find the good. They would prep it. They would take care of it. They'd get it ready on the ship. And any time there was a disaster, every disaster around the world, they would send a ship full of food and medical supplies to meet the needs of the people based on what we in the United States threw away. And he's still going. You know how he got his first ship? He felt like the Lord was calling him and the Lord was directing him and God had a plan. And so he knew this guy who had a ship for sale. And I, I, I don't remember how much it was. I want to say 500000 That's a lot of money. Ship couldn't be 500000 could it? 50? Oh, whatever. <laughs> okay, well, you get the idea, right? Ship was a lot of money. Somewhere... Anyway, lots of zeros after it. He didn't have any money. But he went to this guy. He went to the, the business that had that ship for sale. He set up an appointment with the owner. He sat down with him and he said to him, I just wanted to have a meeting with you to let you know that God needs your ship. He laid out for him what his, what his desire was and what he saw God doing. And I would have been too chicken. I would have said it would never work. But that owner right there signed that ship over to him. Free. Just gave it to him. Here you go. He has seven ships now. And they go around the world feeding people with the garbage that we throw away. Last I heard, they were based out of Galveston. It's hilarious when you talk to him because his boats, his ships are always running out of gas when they come into port. But as soon as they run out of gas and they get pulled into a portage, a place to park the ships, he don't have no money to pay for the portage. He don't have no money for fuel. And almost right when they dock, he'll start getting phone calls. Hey, I want to donate fuel for your ship. Hey, I'm going to take care of the portage. I'm going to take care of all this stuff. And he's been running that ministry for years like that. Now, you and I, we would say, that's never going to work. you got to have a plan. you got to have backing. you got to have all this money. you got to have all this stuff. And if you and I waited for all that stuff instead of doing things God's way, he would have never had one ship go one place. But he was submitted to do it God's way. And that's how we want to be, isn't it? We want to we be listening to God's voice, God's direction, God's plan. Sometimes it's going to make sense to us and sometimes it won't. But we're trusting in the men that God has raised up, that God has provided them what they need. And what's the key? Right here. They take the problems of the people to God. They pray for them. They get alone with the Lord. They spend time with Him. And then look at verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. What's the second thing? He says teach. Must be able to teach. Isn't that what Paul said when he talks about an elder, when he talks about a pastor? What is it? The role that they're supposed to be able to do? They're supposed to be able to teach. They're supposed to be able to break out God's word. And that's what Moses is called to do. Get alone with God. Pray and teach. Moses' primary role with the children of Israel was going to be those two things. And then look what he says in verse 21. Moreover, you shall select... 
from all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. This is what he says. First pick men of ability. Then pick men of godliness. Then he says to pick men of God's word and finally men of honor. These are supposed to be the, the measurement of the men that God calls to, to be in a position of authority over the groups of hundreds and thousands and fifties and tens that this is the way that they would break it down. Now, does it nowhere in here does it talk about what kind of degrees they're supposed to have, whether or not they're fluent in the Greek and the Hebrew, if they have a master's of divinity or just a, a master's of religious studies, or if they have a bachelor's and associates. What does it say? Men who are able. Men who are able. What was it? Remember when the church had all the problems in the book of Acts chapter 7? The church is going along, moving good, and it starts stumbling and having trouble. And there was a group of widows that felt neglected, right? Those of the Hellenists, the, those who spoke the Greek. The Greek group or part of the body of the church felt as though they were being neglected. And what was it that the, that the apostles decided? Choose men full of the Holy Spirit. Able men. Set them aside for this task. What was it that Peter said? Hey, we don't have time to wait on tables. If we stop and wait on tables, we don't have time to pray. We don't have time to teach. We don't have time to lead. So we need to have men that are capable, that are able to stand up and fill the gap. To make the business of the body happen. And so they picked seven, and of the seven, they all had Greek names. What does that mean? That means that those people who had the problem became part of the solution. One of the first things, one of the best things my wife ever taught me was when she was doing child care, she had all these little kids. Now, I, I thought that the only way to get a little kid to listen to you was to be mean and ornery enough and then fear they would do whatever you said. But that didn't work. So Kathy, when she was dealing with the kids, she taught the kids when they were fighting and bickering with one another, she would teach them, listen, if these two people were fighting, these two kids were fighting, listen, tell him what's wrong and what you want him to do about it. Don't just present a problem or call names or do all these things, but present a problem and become part of the solution. You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Lord calls us to do the same thing. Let him who stole with his hands steal no longer, but let him make with his hands that of which he can help. What is it? Let the guy who had the problem become part of the solution. Let those who see the need be willing to stand up and say, hey, I'm willing to, to be a part. 
to fill the need. Here at the church, we have a, a group of men called the deacons. And deacons are, you may not can tell all the time that work's being done, but if you see the sign out in the front when you pull in and a mound of dirt around it, we got part of the body. Some of the ladies in the church, they're going to plant a, a, a flower, a group of flowers around that sign. And we got the deacons, and Kelly's heading it up, getting the hill ready and getting the the drip system set in and getting the electricity out there so we can put a little light down by the sign and make it all pretty and look nice. But that's what? We see a need, we become part of the solution, and we throw our own backs and shoulders and our own muscle into the, into the, into the challenge or the problem and bring about a solution. On this whole church, I look around it. So many people left their fingerprints in the drywall and, and on the tile that was laid and in the heating and the air conditioning and, and now in the roofing and, and all around this. And that's how it's supposed to be. Because the church, folks, in the building, the church is us. The building's just a place we want to meet without getting rain on our head. And when the wind's really blowing, we don't want pieces of it blowing off. So we got to take care of what God has given us and what God has gifted us with. And so we stand together, just like Moses. One guy can't do it all. But if every piece does its part, well, the job becomes small, doesn't it? I mean, think about our own bodies. Paul would give us that example, right? The church is like the body. Does the thumb say to the... To the hand, it's not part of the hand anymore? Or does it say, forget it, I'm going to be a toe today? I don't want to be a thumb anymore. I don't want to, does a heart say to the stomach, hey, let's switch places? No, each part does its job. If they start switching places, we got problems, don't we? Body starts to fall apart. So we each want to fulfill that role, be that part. And here we see Jethro Telling Moses, giving him this wisdom. Hey, don't do it all yourself. Spread it around. Don't forget about your ministry to your family. Don't spend all your time on here. you got to be spending time seeking the Lord in prayer and teaching and doing these things. We as a body have to stand up and, and, and take our rightful place together. And then in verse 22, he says, Now you let them judge the people at all times, and it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Hey, one of the things we just did recently as a board is we divided the board of elders, and, and each elder has an area, a sphere of influence. For example, um, Fritz is in charge of, of worship ministry and and uh, in Sunday school, and each one has got a piece of the pie, so that if there's an issue, everybody doesn't feel like they have to find me, but they can find that person, that one within the, their their area of ministry that they can take the issue to, and maybe they can solve it right then, take care of it, and they're less frustrated trying to find me, because who knows? I could be halfway to Boise today and headed out to to St. Luke's uh, tomorrow, and who knows? the next day, what that day is going to hold based on what happens within the body. But if we all fill in our spot, take our spot, fulfill that calling with which the Lord has given us, then we can continue to accomplish the business of ministry. And that's what they were doing right here. 
That's what they had done. So he said in verse 23, if you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. He said, hey, it's all going to work out if you do it like this. If you understand it. And you know, it's the same design that Paul gave for the church. The same thing that Jethro tells Moses here. And Moses, the scripture says, so Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went his way, and he went his way to his own land. Now as we close, I want to remind you of one thing. That group of men at one time that Moses picked, able men, caught up in God's word, studying God's word, desires of the Lord forefront in their mind, desiring to please the Lord, folks, that same group became known as the Sanhedrin. And they were the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Because any time ministry becomes just a job, just a thing we're trying to fulfill, and and the Bible just becomes words on a page, and it's not a life, and it's not changing, it's not working and, and moving in our hearts and in our bodies, any time it becomes like that, we are in danger of becoming just like them who wouldn't recognize their Savior when he's standing before them bleeding. Didn't recognize him. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus writes that seventh letter to that last church, Laodicea, do you remember what he says? He's not in that church. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm outside. That church had become so lukewarm, they didn't even know who Jesus was anymore, just like the Sanhedrin. Now, it didn't start that way, right? It started guys on fire. How did the church start in Acts? Guys on fire, right? I mean, Stephen, one of those first deacons that was chosen, he was one of the first martyrs, wasn't he? And the church is moving and it's on fire. But then somewhere between there and the Middle Ages, the church got off track, didn't it? I mean, the church got all sideways for for a period of time. Why? Because they lost track of what the Lord laid out in this establishment of the government or the body within within the church, within the nation of Israel. We've got to keep... The main thing, the most important thing. The main thing isn't how many hungry people we can feed. The main thing isn't uh, how nice a property looks or whether or not the lawn got mowed. What's the main thing? Jesus Christ. And we keep the main thing. The main thing, folks, we'll be on track. And God's going to do mighty things here. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much that we can come before you, that we can study your word, that 
That God, we can even see in the Old Testament, in the pages of the Old Testament, God, you still have a, a, a message for us. I mean, all the things that we study in the New Testament had their foundation in the Old. We see it all. Mercy, grace, your plan for how the body is to move, even as we see Moses build what would become the governing body of the nation of Israel. Father, may we heed the warning that while there were times when that governing body was on track and just just trucking, that, that, that it's capable of getting off track. Father, may we always keep the main thing the main thing, our focus where it needs to be. It's all about Jesus. It's all about that gospel. It's all about reaching out to the lost with the truth of God's word. Father, let us not be distracted by service. And at the same time, God, let us not ignore the need for service. For how will they go if they aren't sent? Who will tell them? How will this work be accomplished? It'll be accomplished as you move your body, as we become your hands and feet. But we have to present ourselves to you. We have to present our members to you. Here I am, Lord, as as Isaiah said, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me. Father, fit for service. And as we present ourselves for service to the Lord, we always want to keep main thing the main thing we want to learn from martha we want to stay focused i can serve and love jesus and not be bitter about what anybody else is doing because this is what he's called me to do father may we as your body stand healthy stand strong not devouring one another but coming alongside one another When a brother is weak, we help him hold his arms up. When one needs prayer, we hit our knees and we lift them up in prayer. Father, for the needs of the body, God, we just come to you. We pray, Lord, that you would always give us leaders that are willing to seek you first before anything else. Father, may you guide us and lead us. May you keep us on track. Lord, there's a lot of folk. I see them every day. I saw them at the... At the football game at Buell High School, I seen him out in Castle Ford when we were out there. I see him in Filer. I see him all around. People who are lost, people without hope, people that need you. And and you said, Lord, the field is white for harvest. So pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. Lord God, help us be part of the solution. Help us to reach our world. Help us to make a difference. Help us, Father, to reach the place where the folks in this community are saying, hey, those are the guys that hang out with Jesus. For that's how we want to be known, by who we hang out with. And Lord, we ask that you would move in a mighty way, accomplishing your will in our communities, with our neighbors. Father, just light a mighty fire, Father God, that's going to that's gonna claim this whole place, this whole area for you. 
Lord, we ask that you might move in a mighty way among your people. As we lay this before you, we seek your blessing and anointing in Jesus' name. Amen.